you're sitting in this room and you're a Christian, there's one inevitable truth, just as sure as you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's also very sure that you will go through a season in your life where God feels far. Is that striking home for anybody tonight? Mm -hmm. Sometimes in life we go through these emotional, spiritual highs, maybe when we just become a believer, and we have this ecstatic, energetic, maybe a little bit obnoxious <laughs> uh, experience of just overwhelming joy with God. You know, we just we we gotta get we gotta get the word out that God is good, right? But then it doesn't take too long in life where certain things begin to crowd in and all of a sudden the joy that you once had gets a little bit muted and as you kind of progress through more and more struggles and more and more pressures of life come upon you you can feel the, the heaviness of this life well today in in psalm 42 and 43 the psalmist is going to bring us into his mind and he's going to show us a vision of what that depression can look like. And what he's going to do is he's going to give us an example of three different placebos that he tries to prescribe and take for himself to make himself feel better, but in the end, only find one remedy that truly is going to help him out of his pit. And the context of this psalm, well, we can't be 100% sure, I think is very, very perfect for where we are at in our Bible reading. Um, we just finished out Ezekiel, literally the Ichabod, the glory of God, the presence of God has left the temple, right? And he literally just is, is immediately pronouncing judgment on Judah, and very, very shortly after that, they'll be cast off and taken away from, from Jerusalem by Babylon. Right? So in some ways tonight, we're in exile. <laughs> What? So, and as you can imagine, right, the way that they would do that is they would take first the royalty, they would take the skilled workers, and then they would take some of the commoners, right? So, technically, Jared and Mary Beth would have gone first. So you should not be here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and so we would all be sitting in Babylon, for instance, away from the temple, away from God, right? And one can imagine for a, a, a Jew in that time what that might have felt like. And here our psalmist gives us that. So we begin in um, the inscription there to, in Psalm 42 to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. This is the first time in the book of Psalms where it's not David anymore. So book one of Psalms is five books. Book two starts. And the first psalm we have is some, something uh, or as a psalm that's written by someone named, or someones named the sons of Korah. And these are a couple of sons from Korah, which is essentially a member of the Levite clan, whom David or Solomon appointed for worship in the temple. So essentially he's our, he's our primary worship leader, and the sons and his sons are writing this psalm. And they write, starting in verse one, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Uh, the imagery is like a, if you've ever been to Israel, you'll know that Israel has a lot of deserts, right? It's just a very dry place. 
And in some ways, we've kind of domesticated California because we import so much water in. But it very much feels like here. And in the summers, you, you know, it's like 120 degrees outside. You're just, you go outside and, well, it's not as bad as the South. Okay, Keely's giving me a face. I know it's true because in it, if you're in Atlanta or some of those other places, you walk outside and you take a shower. But still, <laughs> if, if you're here in the summer, you know it, it's hot, right? And so humans will consume suggested half a gallon a day. Deers double that. So as we think about what the psalmist is, is saying, he is comparing the thirst of a deer needing to go find a stream in the midst of a very, very dry land with his soul thirsting and hungering after God. What does that even mean? <laughs> My soul thirsts for God? I mean, we have physical sensations of thirst. Our bodies are... We, I mean, we can't go three days without water. I mean, it's, it's getting sketchy when... You know, you're at lunchtime and you haven't even drank a cup of water in the day. I know some of you guys do that work too much and you don't take breaks. But when your soul is thirsting for God, that means your life is thirsting for God. That means your your inner man, the innermost part of you, is thirsting and longing after something. And I don't know if you all have ever experienced that. What, what kinds of things internally do we have desires for? Maybe we can think about when we were kids growing up. And on Christmas Eve, you know, the whole month of December has gone by, and we're just like so amped up, like school is out. I've been watching those presents underneath that tree just keep growing and growing and growing. And man, tomorrow's Christmas. It's like, let's do this. What do you, what do, you do? You can't sleep, right? You, you, you just like lay out on the couch, and you're just like, mom, it's fine. I'll just sleep here because tomorrow I know it's going to be a good day, right? It's like you're thirsting after it. It's like you, you just, you're craving after something. And this is, I think, obviously a positive, uh, a positive spin on what's happening to the psalmist here. He's just saying, I'm thirsty for God. And he goes on in verse 2, and he's going to continue to describe this. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So he's again thirsting for God, but he's not only thirsting for God, he qualifies at this time. Now he's thirsting for the living God. And if you guys can recall the teaching that Jared did a couple weeks ago on this idea of living water, I think that's the sense here. There is this living God whom he's thirsting after because this living God is the re representation of living water which gives life. And he's, he's in need of, essentially, spiritual life. So he says, I'm thirsty for God. I'm thirsty for this living God. And notice what he says here. When he's thirsty for God, what is he prescribing himself? He says, when shall I come and appear before God? He doesn't say, um, when is somebody going to come and cheer me up and tell me that everything's all right? You know, when are people going to help me? Or... Well, when is physical water going to come, you know, when are the envoys of supplies going to come in, and, and when am I going to actually find physical relief? And he's not saying even, when is God just going to spiritually sedate me and just make me feel like I'm on cloud nine again, you know, like when I was, let's say, a baby believer, right? You know what I'm saying? He says, when shall I come and appear before God? 
when can I come back into the presence of you? Oh. But he'll go on to try these placebos, and we'll get there. He's, he's literally just laying out his condition right now. And how is this, outward, how is this thirst outwardly manifested? In verse 3, he says, My tears have been my food day and night. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So he's thirsting for God. He's looking for God in a spiritually dry place. What does he get? All he gets is his own tears. Little drops of salty water that he's feeding on day and night. If, if you guys and many of you were here for the, the Seder dinner, if you guys remember this, the parsley, and we had to dip salty, uh, dip it in salty water, and then we had to eat that. I mean, just imagine doing that all day and all night. And I'll be like, God, just, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I would do. Um, but this is the bitterness of his experience, right? And then he introduces this second group of people. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And we'll see who these people are in a couple verses. But essentially, they're enemies of the psalmist. And what are they doing? They're taunting him, right? And it seems like this phrase, where is your God, has become something... I think Hollywood stole this from the Bible, specifically from the prophets, because it seems like in every superhero movie, you just got that same dynamic. Damsel in distress, or somebody's in distress, villain comes in, he's wrecking the place, and then there's like that one scene in the whole movie where he just says, where is he now? You know? Like, where is he? Where's your guy? And then, of course, like two seconds later, the guy breaks through the wall and just like the whole thing just goes down. And then, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to break it. <laughs> this is what happens when you preach, okay? You're just not self-aware. Not self-aware. He breaks through the wall. He powers the villain. And he comes in and he goes, yeah, here I am, right? It's like, I'm here. And so this is, these are what these enemies are doing to him. They see him in his, in his stupor, in his depression, and they're just taunting him. You know, they're just trying to make him more angry or more doubtful. Just saying, where is your God? I'm, I'm taking you to Babylon. You have no way to, to escape from us. Our gods are stronger than your God. Your God didn't come to your rescue. What hope do you have? And so that's really not helping. And maybe you've been in a tragedy yourself, and you find yourself even using this question against yourself. You know, it's like when everything goes wrong, all of a sudden, the main question you want to ask is, where is God? Has he, has he disappeared? Is he gone from my life? Is, is he done with engaging in my life? Is he done caring about me? Is he done? And you just, it begins to raise these doubts. This is what the psalmist is going through, and people are rubbing it in his face. And so we get to this point, the psalmist essentially has now laid out his condition. I mean, he's in a bad way. He's thirsty, he's down, people are hating on him. And what does he do? He, he essentially here takes his first placebo, right? 
And these placebos are things that I will make, uh, I'll pretty much describe as memories. So he begins to try to prescribe himself memories and memories of different things. So in verse 4, he begins with his first placebo. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts of songs and praise, a multitude keeping festival. So he's remembering these things and he's pouring out his soul as he's doing it. You know, there's, I think, one, one story in the Bible and it also uses the same language that illustrates this text. If we remember in 1 Samuel 1, uh, who's the main character that we have in that book, if we can recall? Close. Little, keep going back. Samuel. Samuel. And then Samuel's mom. Hannah. Hannah, right? Mm -hmm. And what is the story of Hannah? This is a super sad story, guys. It says year after year, essentially her family, her husband, would go to the house of God to make sacrifices. And all of the other wives that he had, had children, and she didn't. And year after year this goes on, and he essentially gives his portion of sacrifices to everybody in the family, and then he lands on Hannah at the end to say, no, this is the most precious, and I'm giving you double as much. But she just expresses her anguish about not being able to have kids, and he says, am I not more to you than ten sons? Which is... I think a horrible way, just by the way, husbands, don't do that. It's like, if your wife's going through hard stuff, don't be like, honey, dangerous ground. <laughs> so one of these times in the year, she is at the temple and she's crying out to God and she says, or and, and Eli, one of the priests who's at the temple, comes up to her and he goes, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But then she answers, no, my lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been here pouring out my soul. That is the deepness of the bitterness, of the disappointment, of the frustration that she's facing in not having children. And that's the same type or the same degree of bitterness and frustration and disappointment that our psalmist is feeling here. God, where are you? And there is, and so he, what he says in this placebo, he says, I'm pouring out my soul, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to remember this one time, right? In fact, I did this many times. And he, he says, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God. Which is essentially him, him recalling a time as a musician leading the people of God into the temple of God with music and singing and joyful praising. I mean, think about this. All the males in Israel were required to go back to Jerusalem during these feasts 
three feasts a year, and all the men in Israel. And I was thinking, how many are we talking about? At the end of 2 Samuel, when David sins and he gives the cent, he, he tries to collect the census of how many men are in the, the country, it essentially adds up to 1.3 million soldiers. So I don't know if that's if that's just soldiers as in means, hey, these are the guys who are big enough to fight, or if that actually just means, hey, these are the adults, the adult males. So think about that, 1.3 million, and obviously this, this illustration kind of breaks down here, but if you had 1.3 million Christians all going to one place to worship God, the way that I can describe the joy of that, and obviously this, this isn't perfect, but just think about like Easter. Like, we heard, well, at least Jared mentioned that there were so many of us that felt so amazing on Easter, right? It's like, we're all there. I mean, there's free food. I mean, I mean we're, we're with another church. It's just, it's, it's a setting where we can just worship. I mean, everybody we love is there. I mean, Charles got baptized. I mean, it's just, we come out of that and we're just so pumped up. But think about that, like, on crack. Like times, like a million, like a, times a million, right? It's like, man, there's like, like fifty thousand people getting baptized, and there's like eighty, eighty-five thousand tables of food, and it's just, it's just like this big thing. And how great would this be? But what does this placebo do? the psalmist. He remembers this great time where he led all these people into this great event. And then he says in verse 5, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's like he's, he's in a dream. Like he's, he's, he's like in a in a memory, like he's just zoning out, and then all of a sudden, his soul just breaks in, and he's like, I'm still here, buddy. Like, I still feel terrible. W what are you gonna do? And so the psalmist gives himself this like self-talk. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And he states the central, here he really states the central thread of this song. And we're going to see like this, these three phrases here, why are you downcast, and then hope in God, and I shall again, like he's going to literally move from the beginning of this little thread to the end by the end of the song, right? And it's going to repeat, so we're going to see this again, and, and it'll, you'll see the progression there. But for now, he tries simply to talk himself out of that sadness. And he's essentially describing his soul as being cast down. Have you ever felt in your life when something really bad has happened and your soul, you just feel like your soul is just completely vaporized? Like you're just laying there on the floor and, and you just like have no motivation. I, I, like I just feel so dreadful. Like my soul is just it's cast down. That's, that's the idea. And why are you in turmoil within me? Ironically, that's, that's related to the word that he was using to describe the procession, the great multitude that he would go and sing with. Now he's saying his soul is in great, I guess, uproar, and it's, it's essentially just having a chaos fit in his own body. 
about his condition. And how terrible a feeling that must be for him to be in, having your soul melted away and restless within you. And so he, he does what I would do. He tries another placebo. <laughs> so he goes into placebo, placebo number two. He says, just to affirm that not much has changed, in verse six, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. And this time, this placebo is not necessarily about event, people, but he's thinking about the prosperity of the land of Israel. God gave this land. It's a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey. And it's like, if you were to think about Israel, think about California, shrink it down to the size of New Jersey, right? And the coast is, it's, it's very similar. The coast is Venice, Santa Monica, Malibu. We would come up a little ways here in the valley. We're in what they call the Shafela, or this would, these would be kind of like the farmlands, which way back when this was all orange groves, so I think that makes sense. Up in Santa Clarita, and specifically if you guys have been to family vacation, you know, where we have our uh, annual fun vacation retreat thing, it's like up in the mountains, that's kind of like where Judah would be. That's kind of like essentially where the, the city of Jerusalem would be. And then beyond that, way past what we call the, the, the grapevine or the central valley, right? That would be like the Jordan River Valley. And then on the other side of that, we've got these huge mountains. We've got places like Mount Whitney, and we've got Yosemite up there. And it's hard for me to kind of describe this because it breaks down, but it's like standing on top of Mount Whitney. He's like standing on top of Mount Whitney, looking at the Central Valley, looking all the, at all like the, the rivers and, and things that are, that are supposed to be flowing through there if we didn't irrigate it. And then looking up at Yosemite, and just thinking, man, there's so much good life here. It's such a good land to be able to live in, you know? And he's and he's put he's setting his mind on this and he's hoping maybe this will maybe this will give me the hope that I need to make it through this. And what happens in the next verse? Again, another scary thing just breaks in. Verse seven. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So in the beginning, he was like, hey, God, I'm thirsty for you. I need living water. But now it's like, oh, God, it's too much water. It's like, what, you know, that's phrasing is there a little bit confusing, even for me. Deep calls to deep. Essentially, that's like torrential flood calls to torrential flood. And when we come together, we make a massive roar. And all of the waves and the, and the, tide, the tidal waves that would break over somebody are breaking over the psalmist. I mean, it's this feeling of drowning. And, you know, when, when I was... And if, if anybody has struggled with depression, you will, you will I think, will understand this. Um, when I was in high school, before my senior year, I went through a bout of depression because I was 
getting involved in drugs and my family had gotten involved and I essentially got in trouble. And I just remember sitting there in my room thinking, oh God, my, you know, not in a good way. I was not a Christian back then. But I just remember thinking, my, my life is over. Like, I don't know what hope I can derive now. My dad doesn't trust me, of all people, and we already had a strained relationship. I mean, I don't know who else I can go to or what else I can go to for hope. And I spent the next six months or so in this depression, and I just remember every morning getting up, and the one thing that I was hoping for was that the waves wouldn't crash in on me too soon. I knew they were coming. I knew I couldn't escape them. I knew I was going to be drowning the whole day, but I was just hoping when I wake up, let me just have some time before I have to go back under like that. I think this is that idea. And you're trying to cling on to anything, right? And so again, placebo, reality breaks in. What is he going to do? And so he does, again, what I would do. <laughs> he tries yet another placebo. He's tried people, events. He's tried land, material blessing. And so what is he going to try now? And this, we would think, would be the thing. We would think, man, if there's anything that's going to get him out of this, meditating on this will be the one thing. I bet it will. I bet it's going to help. Verse 8. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. And so he reaches, he reaches again back into his memory banks. And he reaches for this time, the time when he had this wonderful, blessed, vibrant, active relationship with God. And he's recalling the steadfast love of God. And it's welling up in him as song. And if you, if you look at God in this verse... In verse 8, look down there. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. So in the first 41 Psalms, this is the Lord that's used, Yahweh, the personal name of God. In this Psalm, if you were to go through it from the beginning, it's God, Elohim. So a little bit more generic. God, 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 God. But in this memory, he pulls it back to this personal place. God, remember, I remember this relationship I had with you, God. Personal name, relationship, you, God, and your steadfast love. And not only that, in that time, he was protected all day and all night. Very different to what he's going through now, right? Unfortunately, this placebo, too, only lasts for a minute. And uh, I'll share with you guys that this, this last placebo hit hits home with me. Um, you guys know that uh, I've been in seminary, and some of you guys know just some of the struggles that are associated with going through that. And what I have found myself doing in my, in my experience these last few years has been doing this. Just telling myself, Eric, remember those times? Now, remember when you used to pray for like two hours? Remember those times when you used to get with your friends and you guys used to stay up all night praying? Remember those times when you used to serve and it seems like you had endless energy and you could just do everything for the Lord, but now 
hard, it's difficult. And I remember that, and I, and I, as I studied this, I was almost offended by this verse. It's like, what do you mean this is not going to be the thing? Because I have been trying that placebo for so long. And so he says in a cry of desperation in the next couple of verses, he just continues to describe what's going on with him. While he was remembering the goodness and the steadfast love and this healthy relationship with God, again, all of a sudden, reality striked. And he was back to where he was. It's like, God, all these good things, but I can't just put a band-aid on it. Look at what's happening to me. Verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Now, what's fortunate about the psalmist here is at least in the first verse he calls him his rock. And that just goes to show you guys that sometimes you can be in a really difficult time in life, but that doesn't change the fact that God is still who he is in your life. You may not feel like God is near sometimes, but I hope that we will be like the psalmist. <coughs> God, my rock. Even though I don't feel certain things, you're still my rock. And that rock is that rock is that, that ancient Near East term that's used to describe strength and protection. It's like when Jared taught on Edom, right? The fact that the, the reason why Edom, this nation to the south of Israel, was so powerful and immovable wasn't because they had a huge army. Okay? It wasn't because they were technologically advanced. It was simply because they lived in a place that was pretty much like a fortress of rocks. And there's so much protection and safety, there's only some small ways that enemies can get in. They can't come over them, they can't come under them. I mean, they're just covered. And this is God to his people. He's their rock. We take refuge in him. And he's strong. And nothing can break through that. But he continues and he asks, why, why, you, why have you forgotten me? And it's not, you know, if you take that literally, you can't take that literally, you know. It's not like God can just make somebody completely blank from his mind. He's completely omniscient, right? The real, the real point of this question is, God, why are you seemingly not caring for me anymore? Where are you, right? Why are you not addressing the, ail the ailments in my situation right now? You know? And he continues to describe what's going on. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Literally, the way this can be translated is, why do I go about my life and have to mourn? I'm literally doing life, but I'm mourning in this process. Why is that? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? 
again taunting him. And this time he describes what this feels like. By the grace of God, I've never broken a bone. If anybody has, you probably know the pain that is associated with that, right? I, I mean, this is the only place where this word is actually used in the Bible, but it has this sense that you are literally like grinding or, or breaking or crushing a bone. And if you can, I mean, I can just, they say that tooth pain is the most horrible pain. I don't know. I, it's pretty bad, right, guys? I mean, tooth pain is like, but what about a bone in your body being broken? And not only that, but a, a broken bone that's a fatal wound. Like, if you don't, he, like, break open this thing, do surgery and, and heal and restructure and align this thing, I mean, you're going to die. This is what it feels like to him. And it's all day. It's not like it's, it's not like it's just, oh yeah, I went through that season or it's a couple days or this, in the mornings they usually do this. It's all day long they're doing this. And so, the psalmist, after using these three placebos, right, finding no comfort in events or people or places or material or even his own relationship with God and the memories of that. He finds himself in the same place. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. At this point, man, I mean, I've taken you guys to the swamp. I feel bad for you guys. I mean, I, I have literally brought you down into the depths of this, this psalmist oppression. I mean, we gotta, we got to be asking ourselves, is there, is there any hope in this? And there is. Starting in verse 43, I want you to try to pick something up here. Now remember, the psalmist has been applying placebos. He's been remembering things this whole time. I'm just going to read a couple of these verses, and I want you guys to try to think and, and observe what's happening here, what's different. Verse 43, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre. O oh God, my God. What's different? Future. Future. Yeah. yeah. Like in what, in what regard? Uh, send out your light. Let them lead me, let them bring me to so all things that he's not looking back, he's looking forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything else? Anybody maybe have another take on that? What's going on? He's calling God to action here, mm -hmm. as opposed to just lamenting his inaction and the other. Yeah. Yep. Right. And that's exactly it, guys. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll apologize if this 
becomes uh, anticlimactic for you guys. It's like I've been going through all of this stuff and there's just all these things I've been trying to do, placebos and everything like that. Well, have you prayed about it? Have you asked God to help you? And there's so much more to that than just what sometimes we tritely throw around. I'll be praying for you. You know, that, that can kind of just become super commonplace and it's like, it's almost like, all right, good day. You know? But notice in these verses, nothing's changed. He's still against these ungodly people. He's still feeling rejected. He's still under the oppression of the enemy. And yet, something really has changed in the psalmist. And he says, God essentially vindicate me and defend my cause. Which means, be the judge of this situation, God. Right? I think one of the ways that I, I really like to think about this idea is when Saul is on, or David is on the run, and Saul's coming after him. Right? He's trying to assassinate him because of his jealousy. And they get to a place, and Saul's like, hey guys, uh, I gotta use the bathroom, probably go number two. So you guys wait here, I'm gonna go into this cave, I'm gonna do my business, all right? And he goes into the cave, and what he doesn't know is that David is in there, right? David and all of his men. And so he's in the most vulnerable position <laughs> that he could be in. I mean, really, that's, I don't know what other way you could be more vulnerable. And, and David just, what does he do? Like, you think, okay, yeah, this is David's time. Like, he's going to come on, just stab him in the back, like, boom, you know? Like, it's done. You know, and then, then I'm the king, you know? What? David sneaks around, grabs a piece of the cloth of his robe, tears it off, and then waits till Saul's done. And when Saul is done, he exits the cave, and David, soon after him, and what does he say to everybody there? He says, Behold this day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you, Saul, today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, my men, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And then he says, may the Lord judge between us. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. I mean, this is Jesus 101. <laughs> when you have enemies in your life, uh, when you have people even who are unjustly oppressing you, we're called not to take revenge, right? But that kind of makes us feel a little wimpy, right? For being honest. It's like some part of us inside, we're like, we need to get back, you know? Somebody's done something super wrong to us, and we need to just, we need to let them have it, right? But from David and the psalmist, what, what do we see? We see vengeance belongs to the Lord. Right? And so it, I think it's okay. I mean, at least you're bringing that to God, right? Vindicate me, O oh God. 
and defend my cause against an ungodly people. And what's funny about that term ungodly is that is literally not and hesed. Which hesed we know is the steadfast love, the covenant faithfulness of God. Right? So saying these are completely faithless people that are against me. And so the psalmist knows I'm innocent of this. I'm innocent of what's going on. So vindicate me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge in. And he brings God back into his situation. I think that's the point. Earlier, God was his rock. Now, God is his refuge. Before, God had forgotten him. And here we are. I mean, the psalmist is, I think, amping it up with God. Saying, God, you've not just forgotten me, but you're just flat out rejecting me. You know? And in some cases... We can say some things in our prayers that I think are unsanctified. But in some ways, sometimes we are in the, in the raw of our emotion, and God can take that. God can take that, right? But, but the, the point is, is that you be honest with God, right? If God appears to be rejecting you, and as the psalmist would say, God, you have rejected me. I mean, you should be in a sanctified place as we'll see the psalmist is in a second here. But sometimes these honest things come out. And he's not anymore in the stage of lamenting. He's now praying, right? And so he says, this is how you're going to do it, God. Send out your light and send out your truth. Let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. The light here is describing that that salvation of God, right? That whole redemptive purpose and essence of God's salvation. And the truth is his faithfulness. It's essentially his truthfulness. So saying, God, as I am in this dilemma, as I am in this spiritual depression, what I need you to do is not to give me a spiritual sedative, I need you to send out your light. I need you to send out salvation for me. I can't generate, I can't do enough to get myself out of this. I've tried three placebos. I need light. And today we know this light as being wholly embodied and in Isaiah talks about in Jesus Christ who serves as the light of the world, who will essentially bring peoples from all nations, as Isaiah says, into salvation for his own pleasure. The psalmist says, send out your light and send out your truth. Be true to who you are, God. Please, be true to yourself. And I like this. It's not just transport me back to you, God. It's let them lead me. I must go as well. You know, we so badly want spiritual band-aids in life, but are we going? Are we being led as well? Are we allowing Jesus, are we allowing truth, light, to lead us back to God? Um, Sometimes I wonder if we just, and personally for me, 
looking for a emotional spiritual band-aid. Yeah. And so what does he say after this? He says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. He's he's now so uplifted in his petitions, like he's just so elated at this point that he just says, I don't need to remember anymore. No more memories, no more placebos, but sweet and ecstatic anticipation and longing that will be fulfilled in God. And he describes God as his exceeding joy. How you literally translate that is the joy of my rejoicing. I mean, think about that when you're in the most happy, when you've been in the most joyful, rejoicing moment of your life, right? You're just totally up there. And what is the thing that you're feeling? You're feeling joy. And there's this act of rejoicing. And can you just like capture that and just feel how good and pure that is? It's like, God, you are the crown, the pinnacle of the emotions that I feel at the highest point of my rejoicing. You are that. And so, we read now, after having done this, he's anticipating this future dream of being there. And he finally says again, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And we would think, oh man, is he not in the right place? I think the best way to think about this is this was repeated three times, right? Once at the beginning, once in the middle, once at the end. This is how he would have read it the first two times after just continually trying to take in the placebos, right? Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's kind of all he got. But now, after actually praying and exercising faith and coming to the realization of who God is and what he does in our lives, he says, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is what the psalmist is saying. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Izzy's rejoicing with me. <laughs> Most certainly now, he has his remedy. And just like a medicine takes time for the physical pain or the ailments to go away, sometimes we may pray, guys, and sometimes the pain may not go away. But just knowing that it will soon is a great comfort to the soul. So we've seen psalmist trying placebos, trying to live in the past, relive the glory days. But what we come to at the end is 
hope. Real, sustaining, abiding hope in God. And so I want to just real quickly give a just a couple of questions of application. You know, this hope often, we've described this, and you've probably heard this in other contexts, it's not just like sitting and putting our hands under our butts and just sitting. It's like a, it's, it's what we call waiting on God, or tarrying on God. And in our tarrying, we pray, right? So here's, here's my medical examination. Um, where are you tonight? Are you in a place where God feels far? And if so, what is your response to that? I would say, if you don't feel anything, I would be pretty afraid. God feels far to you and you have absolutely no remorse about it, then I'd be pretty concerned about your relationship with God. If you are in a place where God feels far, but you may be experiencing a little bit of what the psalmist is experiencing, then I'd say there's great hope. I'd say there's great hope. And, you know, i got to balance this because we always, I don't want to go too far and say, hey, don't think on the past goodness of God, because we see that all over the place in the Old Testament. But you better not stay there, right? Think on his past goodness, but go and pray. Pray for his present goodness. Pray for his future goodness. And so your situation, if you apply the remedy of going to God, inviting him and pleading with him to enter and break into your situation, I can't guarantee you that you will immediately feel better. I can't guarantee you that your circumstances will immediately change. But I think the hope... uh, that surpasses all understanding of peace, rather, that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That's my prayer for myself, and that's my prayer for all of us. Let me pray for us, and then we can... Father, this life is hard sometimes, and there are things that, are, that we go through that are too beyond us, and I'm just so grateful, God, for this song and the reality that we don't need to try to generate our own remedies, but that we can just come to you, and that in coming to you, God, you are faithful to save us, to truly act on our behalf, to truly take up our cause, and to bring us back into your presence, to give us those things that we remember, the joy and the vibrance and the love in our relationship with you. I pray that we would be like the psalmist at the end, and that we would truly seek you, God, when we feel down. May we be encouraged by this, and may we see this as your divine help for us, no matter what any of us are going through now. In Jesus' name.